There we go. Hello, everybody, and Happy New Year. It's so good to be together. So we did Psalm 23 last week, and this week we are looking at Psalm 131. It's only got three verses, so I've gone very easy on you at the beginning of the year. It's nothing too stressful, but it's a phenomenal psalm, and I hope you will agree with me by the time we get to the end. So we're going to dive right in and read it. Um, It might be on screen. Yeah, it's on the screen. There we go. So here we go from verse 1. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. So like a weaned child, I am content. We're going to be looking at this thing of contentment. And Paul writes about it in Philippians. And I would love us to have those verses um, up and read them as well because they are going to help us understand what it looks like to be content. So Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 12 to 13, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So I am content. I wonder if I were to ask you here to put up your hand, if you would be able to say that about yourself, I am content. I wonder how many people would, I'm not actually asking you to put your hands up, but I wonder how many people, woo, Paulie, wonder how many people would be able to say that I am content. I think it's something that most of us struggle with. You see, our eyes are constantly out looking around and finding things that um, sort of show, show that we should be dissatisfied with what we have and with what we've been given there. We're looking for more things, a better job. If I had you know, a family like this person or if my friends were like this, then I would be content. Um, if I had a holiday, we all watched Gulam's amazing testimony on Christmas Day. If I had a holiday like Gulam, then I would be content. We found ourselves like tiny children, displeased what they were given for Christmas, looking around at what everybody else was given and determined to rectify um, things, circumstances. And how many of our goals this year are based or rooted in this desire? Cam mentioned last year, some people are calling this the year of 2020 more. And so we see in the verses and we read that Paul had learned to be content. You see, contentment isn't a temperament. It's not those people who are just so happy-go-lucky, relaxed, you know, nothing phases them. It's not a temperament you're born with. It's actually something that you learn. Paul says, I learned to be content. I wonder if you know many graduates from the school, people who faced both the highs and the lows. They've had incredible blessed favor in their life, but they've also gone through incredibly painful, difficult times, and in it all have learned to be content, not with their circumstances, but in their circumstances. Do you know graduates from the School of Contentment? Now, I know the kind of people in our community, we love a st- uh, like a five-step program, so you'd love me to say, okay, A, B, C, if you do these things, you will become content, but the thing is, contentment can't be achieved It's part of a process. It's part of a process. And it's not something you do. You kind of white knuckle and be content. You become content. And it's often the result of a hard-won and painful battle. 
And so my question to you would be, what if this year you enrolled in the school of containment? Just as we're preparing to get our kids off to school on Wednesday, yay, can't wait. We too can roll up our sleeves and we can, in this lifelong journey of sanctification, we can learn what it means to become content people in every circumstance. So let's look. We're going to be going through these three verses from Psalms now. And let's look at them and see what does David teach us. He wrote this psalm. What does he teach us about true contentment? So we're going to start with verse 1. He says, My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. So David starts the psalm by declaring that he is not proud. He doesn't walk around thinking that he's better than other people. That's what it means to be haughty. And he also isn't so puffed up with conceit that he involves himself with the running of the universe. He doesn't believe that is something he should be doing, things that are actually beyond his capabilities. And so he starts the psalm with a list of things that you don't do if you want to grow in contentment. And so the starting point, he says, is don't be proud. Don't be haughty. Don't try to run your life and the lives of others as if you were God. And so we need to ask ourselves this question, how good are we at this? Are you looking at this saying, cool, that's actually not that bad, I've got that. I'm not a proud person. I think most of us really struggle with pride, maybe we don't realize we do, and that is why we struggle with contentment. Because instead of living with a posture of humility, willingly being led by God, trusting Him because He created everything, He's the sustainer of everything, we actually find ourselves looking towards our own leadership. We look to ourselves. We chase after things that we believe will give us security, give us status, get like, wealth and stay, uh, yeah, like wealth and promotions and all of those kinds of things. And the reason that we chase after those things is because we have a false belief of God and who He is. We don't actually believe that He is good and that He will take care of us, that He's our provider. And so we need to take care of ourselves. We can't trust him to take care of us. And it reminds me of what Cam said last week. And so just for those who weren't yeah, we went through Psalm 23. And it starts with, the Lord is my shepherd. I would say a lot of us find ourselves saying, I am my shepherd. And if I'm my shepherd, then it's up to me to take care of myself. I've got to be able to feed myself. I've got to protect myself. I've got to look after myself. And it's this way of being that breeds what Eugene Peterson calls unruly ambition. It's a striving, it's a chasing, it's a pushing for more and more, 2020 more, more wealth, more status, and it's centered on self-protection and self-promotion because I am my shepherd. And maybe you're sitting here and you're saying, well, what is it wrong to be ambitious? Is it wrong to push for more? You might be looking at the psalm and thinking to yourself, well, this person who's being described sounds incredibly dull. The fact that he says, you know, I don't concern myself with things too wonderful for me. They sound happy with the status quo. You know, they're just going to bumble along. They're going to just go with the flow. Um, they're going to have just a very unimpressive and boring life. And is that what, is that what David wants us to have? And, you know, you might be one of those people who has a lovely motivational poster in your office saying, never settle for average. And so now you're coming here on Sunday, and it sounds like David is saying you need to settle with average. But the truth is that contentment is not about having a boring life, and it's not about settling for average. It's about having deep security and peace, no matter what the circumstances are that you find yourself in. 
And there's a difference between holy ambition, pursuing the best that God has for you, and unruly ambition, which is when we press and push to get ahead to take care of ourselves, to put ourselves first. See, the Bible's full of ambitious people. We're going to be looking at the book of Acts this year, starting next week. Paul's going to be preaching on Acts. And if you just read a few chapters there, you're going to find some amazingly ambitious people who did some fantastic things. You have Peter. He was forbidden to preach the gospel. It didn't stop him, even though as a result he ended up in prison. He continued. He was not settling for an average or boring life. You also see Paul, how he traveled from city to city. He was often beaten up, also thrown in jail. He had passion. He had drive. He was ambitious. You see, humility is not about being a doormat and sitting quietly in the corner. That's not what we are asking you or what the psalm is suggesting. In fact, you can be ambitious and humble at the same time. It just all comes down to who is your ambition for? Is it for yourself to take care of you? Is it about increasing your wealth and your status? Or is it about God and about God's kingdom? Sometimes the difference is very subtle. And it's hard to kind of walk that line. Because in our culture, it's quite difficult to recognize pride as a sin. You might be sitting here thinking, okay, David, don't be proud. That's not that hard. Yet, this is one of the oldest sins in the book, pride. It goes back right to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve decided God did not know best, and so they took things into their own hands, and that is what Scripture describes as the basic sin of pride, is taking things into your own hands, being your own God, grabbing at what you can while you still can get it. And that now in our culture is described as basic wisdom. We're encouraged to improve ourselves by getting ahead by whatever means possible, regardless of the cost to relationships, regardless to the cost um, to our families, because to be on top is to be admired in our culture. And so we're in this culture. This is, the, this is sort of what we're swimming in. Um, it's very uh, hard to kind of separate ourselves from it. And so we also find ourselves wanting to be on top, wanting to be admired, and so begins the journey towards proud hearts. We think we know best. We struggle to believe that we are limited beings, that we don't have all knowledge. And instead of looking to God, who is unlimited, and who has all knowledge, we turn to ourselves, because we believe we know what is best when it comes to running our lives. We start our, we start our days with ourselves at the center. Instead of asking God, what do you want me to know and what do you want me to do today? We look at ourselves, we look at our calendar and we say, what do I want to do today? And maybe the worst thing that can happen to us is, is, is that we are indeed successful. That as we push and we strive and we go for it and we rule our lives, that we actually do, be, we find we, we are promoted. We find that we are admired because at that point, we're very likely to attribute our success to our own sort of, sort of, we believe it's our own brilliance. And we very quickly start to believe that we know what we're doing and we should continue to take things into our own hands, to be God of our own lives, because evidence suggests that we're pretty good at it. And very quickly, pride takes root in our hearts and we start to look down our noses at others. That's what he's speaking about, about being haughty. 
and we see, oh, the other people haven't done as well as I have. They're clearly not as capable. They're clearly not as impressive as I am. And a strange phenomenon occurs where those who've had success in one area of their lives will be the first to offer expert advice on topics and areas that they know nothing about. It has this amazing spillover effect. You'll see the CEO of a company who's done really, really well, but has never done a day of gardening in his life or read a book or knows anything about it, giving unbelievable advice to an expert landscaper on how best to design a garden. And isn't that true of the way that we interact with God as well? Even though we've never created something out of nothing, we didn't put the stars in the sky. We do not know the stars by name. We haven't sustained the universe for centuries. We feel like we know better when it comes to running the universe. I love God's words to Job in Job 38. He says the following, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? What supports its foundations? And who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? This is our God. He's sovereign over all things. He existed before time, and in him all things hold together. And so if you want to understand contentment, it starts with understanding your place in the world. It's understanding who you are in relation to God. It's a very good starting point. It's very hard to be humble before God if you actually right at your core, you might not say this out loud, but right at your core you believe you are better than God. In your view, God is quite small and you are quite big. And you actually do believe that you have more control over what happens tomorrow than God does. And if that is your mindset, as mine often is, then we'll live as if he doesn't exist. And very quickly, we'll concern ourselves with great matters and things that are too wonderful for us. Eugene Peterson, he really helped me kind of unpack the psalm, and he said the following to summarize these verses. It's very helpful. He says, I will not try to run my own life or the lives of others. That is God's business. I will not pretend to invent the meaning of the universe. I will accept what God has shown its meaning to be. I will not strut about demanding that I be treated as the center of my family or my neighborhood or my work, but seek to discover where I fit in and do what I'm good at. Believe it or not, there are things in this world that are above my pay grade and your pay grade. Unlike God, we are limited, finite beings who do not have sovereign power over all created things. As the disciples discovered when they were in the raging storm with Jesus in the boat, he could still the storm with, with his words. That's the God who is running the universe. Now that would be a terrifying God to place your trust in if he had that kind of power, but not love. But the truth is that he is the most loving, the most patient, and in fact the most content being that has ever existed since the beginning of time. And so who better to trust to run your life and the lives of others than our God? Last year, Paul and I um, had the privilege of going to America for 12 nights, and we had to leave our three children with family 
I'm very grateful to family for that. Um, and it was such a great experience, but truthfully, it was also really tough for me. Um, Paul didn't quite understand why. But it was really good for me to leave my children because it taught me something. And I just want to read a part of my journal, um, things I wrote down the day that we landed in America. I said the following, I am aware of the, how this trip has stripped me of my sense of being in control, in brackets, illusion of control. Not being able to be there to protect and take care of our kids, having to trust God and community has been really hard. All the risks involved in traveling, all that could go wrong, and I've been forced to let go because there is nothing I can do. And it's hard. It almost feels, I mean, I'm quite got quite a lot of poetic, I mean, yeah, it, it gets quite poetic over here. It almost feels like leaping into a rushing river and just going with the flow at the mercy of the water and where it goes. And this line's great. It almost feels reckless. The truth is that God is always in control, always my shepherd, caretaker, provider, father, and I'm in his universe at his mercy, but I am unaware of this most of the time. Only now, being stripped of control, am I seeing it as it always is. And sometimes we need those things to happen in our lives. It's their reminder of who's really in control. And so when David says, my heart is not proud, I don't concern myself with things too wonderful for me, he's saying, I trust God and not myself. When you know that God is good and trustworthy, even with your most precious children, maybe this, that example didn't do much for you, but maybe you know, what is precious to you might be your job or a relationship. When you trust God with those things, part of that trusting is learning to live with some mystery. Because, yes, God is good, and yes, God is in control, but we live in a fallen world. And that means that sometimes we will go through some deeply painful trials and things won't work out the way that we think they should. And when we don't get from life what we think we deserve or what we are expecting, we, it's natural to ask questions and to go to God and say, why, why did this happen to me? This feels unfair, why am I experiencing this? The inevitable questions, especially in our tough seasons, and God's not afraid of them, he's not even displeased when we go to him and ask him. But just like a child won't fully understand all the decisions that a parent makes, for example, you know, no, you're 10 years old, you can't have the car keys. There are some things that we won't fully understand this side of eternity. And so when we mature as Christ followers, part of that maturing is to grow into contentment so that to have an attitude that is not too proud to admit that sometimes we don't know best. You see, the will of God and the ways of God are sometimes mysterious. I mean, if you think about the center of the gospel message is a very puzzling mystery. We have a mystery that death brings forth life. Something so terrible, dying on the cross, resulted in the most glorious gift, which is eternal life for those who believe in Jesus. And so, although Deuteronomy 29 verse 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord and there are some things that we will not understand yet, we need to hold that together with the fact that God is doing all things for the good of those who love him. And one day, 
all will become clear. If we look at what 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11 to 12 says, it really helps us to understand from verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And so we don't have the full picture yet. We see in a mirror dimly. And contentment is found in reaching the place that says, even when I can't understand, I can still trust. And that takes a heart that's not proud. So verse 1 has given us things that we, we don't do in order to become content. And we're now going to look at the last two verses to see what David says we should do in order to grow in contentment. Let's keep reading the psalm. So from verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is the picture of true contentment. One of the most radical things you can do in our current culture is to quiet and calm yourself, firstly. And secondly, is to put your hope in God. There are so many demands on us all the time. There are so many conflicting opinions. Our thoughts run wild. But how often do we still ourselves? Do we go into a quiet place to just be with God? That is where contentment is found. And so David describes this, um, this quietening and calming and this, this space as a weaned child with its mother. You see, a weaned child no longer needs its mother's milk. He's not demanding to be fed every few hours, two hours in Patrick's case, screaming down the house when those demands are not immediately met. And the process of weaning and getting to that point is often very painful. But the truth is, as a mother, you know your child cannot live on milk for the rest of their lives. They cannot be teenagers who still go from a milk meal to a milk meal every two hours. And so you know as part of their maturing, they need to move from milk onto solid food. It's for their own good that you are weaning them. You are training them to become more independent. But that doesn't make it easy. I'm sure we've all witnessed a child who has been denied something. It's not a pretty picture. They rant and they rage and they scream and they use every resource at their disposal to get what they think they need. Eventually, depending on your child, if it's minutes or hours, the screams become sobs. Their eyes are red and puffy. I think we've all seen a child at the end of themselves when they've exhausted themselves with crying and they're just sort of hiccuping. And then they are still exhausted but still. And picture that child in the arms of their mother, and that's what the psalm is describing. This child has calmed and quieted themselves through pain and through disappointment, but they've found comfort in the presence of their mother. Not because their mother has now given them what they need, but simply because they are the child and this is their mother. Who would have thought that to quiet oneself would be quite so noisy? 
But that is often the journey of Christian life. Eugene Peterson says something really profound. It's incredible. But to the weaned child, his mother is his comfort, though she has denied him comfort. It is a blessed mark of growth out of spiritual infancy when we can forego the joys which once appeared to be essential and can find our solace in him who denies them to us. The reason a weaned child can rest content is because they've learned that their mother will not let them starve. And they had to learn that. They can trust that food will be provided at the right time. And so they do not need to whine and cry and beg and scream for it anymore. Before they were weaned, they did that. And for those of you who've been around babies, you know what it's like when they're newborn in those early days. They scream as if they are dying, even though you fed them two hours before. They panic so much that you're going to leave them to starve, that even if you take a break for a minute to burp them, and you've, you've never left them to starve before. They have no reason to think that this is the end, this is, this is, you've left them now to starve to death. Yet they will scream as you're burping them, maybe you're swapping sides, maybe they can even see the bottle still there with milk. Somehow they believe that they are now doomed to die by salvation, ah, salvation, starvation. And so as we mature, we learn that God will always provide what we need when we need it, even if we have to wait. And we learn to come to God not just to get something from Him, because we trust He will provide, but just to be with Him. It's a picture of a relationship built on trust. The child trusts the mother, knows what they need, and it's in that quiet trust that contentment is found. But getting to that place can often be, as I've said, quite a noisy process. It can also be quite confusing. Initially, a child who's being weaned can't understand what's happening. Why is their mother not giving them what they are crying out for? But it's because the mother knows where they're taking them. They know the journey that they're on, and they need to make those decisions on behalf of their child to slowly give them less and less milk and train them to eat solid food instead. Now, for those of us who have been Christians for many years, I wonder if you've been aware that God has weaned you. You see, initially when we put our trust in Jesus, we, we have all these incredible spiritual highs. We just feel his presence so tangibly. We're so hungry to read the word. We want to gather with other Christians. We just move from spiritual high to spiritual high. We feel so much peace. We feel his love so tangibly. But as the months go on, we begin to experience these spiritual highs less frequently. Now, why does God do that? Good question, because it can be quite confusing, and you can kind of wonder, well, maybe I'm not a Christian anymore, because it doesn't feel like it felt at the beginning, or maybe God's abandoned me, but the answer is no, God has not abandoned you, you are being weaned. You are free to come to him or not come to him, and God wants you to grow in his trust of him, and that is how he teaches us to trust him that he knows what we need at all times, and he will provide for us. And so you see, contentment can't be found in circumstances that ebb and flow, that are constantly changing. But where it is found is in that relationship with God, in that coming to him just for the sake of being with him, contentment is found 
in this God who does not change. And that's why David ends the psalm with the words, Israel, put your hope in the Lord both now and forevermore. He is our hope. But how do we do that? How do we put our hope in the Lord? How do we calm and quieten ourselves? Because as we read in Philippians chapter 4, there are times when we are in plenty and there are times when we are in want. So how are we meant to just refrain from yelling and screaming and asking and rather just sit quietly with the Lord like a weaned child with his mother? And David, who wrote the psalm, he can relate to the struggle. And we're going to have a look at what happened to him in 1 Samuel 30. You see, he'd been off with his men, and they had been fighting in a war, and they returned to their camp. And when they got back, their wives and their children had been captured. Pretty devastating. And we read in Samuel chapter 1, verse 30, that David and his men wept aloud until they had no strength left to weep. And verse 6 then says, And David was greatly distressed. So this quietening and calming of our souls doesn't mean that we never experience distress. It doesn't mean that we never cry. But this is what it says. He was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself. In what? Did he strengthen himself in like his ability to fix the problem? Did he strengthen himself in, yeah, his, in his good ideas? No, he strengthened himself in his God. And it's so similar to what Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 4, where he said, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, because I can do all things through himself? No, through him who strengthens me. And so we strengthen ourselves in the Lord when we place our hope in Him and not in our circumstances or even our ability to fix or change them. And the way that we do that is not by pushing down any pain that we might feel. You see that David was distressed, him and the men cried until they could cry no more. We don't just clench our fists and, and grit our teeth and say, okay, you know, I, I hope in you, Lord. Rather, we do it through recalibrating our, our thinking through renewing our minds. That's key. Instead of dwelling on disappointments, dwelling on the things that are bringing us distress, the losses we've experienced, our circumstances, we remind ourselves, we, we renew our minds, we school ourselves, we teach ourselves, we take our circumstances, whether that be an illness or perhaps job security or your financial situation, we take those things and we view them in light of what is true about God. And the Bible is where we find these truths. It's full of amazing truths. And you can turn to them and you can remind yourself of them. I, this whole week, have been meditating on that first verse of Psalm 23. Every time I felt overwhelmed, um, I've stopped. I've stilled myself and I've said, The Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. My cup overflows. And you will find as you meditate on these truths, you will be able to quiet and calm yourself. And you'll find that you are content and that you do have the strength that you need to face every circumstance. And community is such a big part of this process. You see, David, when he wrote the psalm, he spoke to Israel. He said, Israel, whole nation, put your hope in the Lord. We need to do this together. 
Sometimes we're so deep in the thick of it, and our thoughts are just going round and round and round, and we're not getting anywhere, and we're actually just getting ourselves in a bit of a panic, that we need other people to come and help us to renew our thinking, to recalibrate our thinking. And so I'm so grateful for the people in my life who I can share my struggles with, and they can, they can teach me, they can school me, they can give me the truth of who God is. And um, remind me of, of Bible verses that, that really do recalibrate my thinking. So my question to you is, who are those people in your life? People who help you to meditate on what is true about God and not to focus on your circumstances. And who in your life can you be that person for? And so Common Ground Church, C-Point, let us put our hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. Contentment is found nowhere else. It's in his presence as we calm and quiet ourselves that we find contentment.